It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. This episode was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you'd like to support the show and uncool stuff like bonus episodes and shout-outs in the show, as well as deciding what topics come next, go over to Demystified by Ashley Styles on Patreon and support us there. Or follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod, because it helps the show out. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Wiltshire, England, 3000 BC. The sun rises on a new day and the people gathered around the monument celebrate. This is the first stage of its life cycle. Over the next thousand years or so, it'll be added to, updated, and expanded. The monument isn't much at the moment. Some earthworks, a concentric circle of wooden poles, much like other monuments around. But one day will be the envy of ancient Britain, and a mark that people from as far away as Greece will have heard of. You see, the next big addition, that which would come when Britain entered the Age of Bronze, would be stones. Not just any stones, special stones. Ones that could heal the sick and spare the dying. Ones that had a special resonance and made a strange sound when struck, a ringing noise. Ones that when aligned could predict the future and mark the movements of the stars, maybe even the movements of the gods themselves. Generations would be born and die in the shadow of this great structure, each adding to it and changing it, adapting its use for their own purposes. In a way, it's a bit like the land itself, immutable in a sense, but still always changing, and the people who use it see it in a different way. They leave their marks on it, and it leaves its mark on them. But then, one day, this stops. Like an old mountain once climbed, now sitting vacant as a lone peak in the distance, all people could do was sit and contemplate. Those who built it, such as it could be said to have been built, never told of why, and thus for millennia afterwards the best and brightest from all corners of the globe have scrutinised it, pondered its every facet, trying to see what those people once thought so simple could see that we can't. Why was this monument built in the first place? Many have theorised, some attempted to explain it. The stones, some as big as 24 feet tall and 25 tonnes heavy, have come all the way from Wales, a quarry around 150 miles away. How were they transported? For what purpose? And why choose stones that were deliberately difficult to get there? There was local stone available and some of it was used in the structure, and many similar structures were built out of wood. But this was made out of the very special stone as well as the local elements. Furthermore, those wooden structures have largely not stood the test of time. This one of stone has done 
and has become a firm image in the common consciousness. We often think of Stonehenge as being older than time. Really, it was constructed around the same time as the Great Pyramid of Giza. Far simpler in terms of scale and execution, but no less important to the people who built it. Clearly, as they took great care in the assembly and erection of the towering blocks, each one taller than a man and far greater in weight, rolled or dragged all the way from Wales to Wiltshire in the south of England. And don't imagine that this was the Celts, either. Whilst they would have had some hand in the later stages of the monument's life cycle, the foundations were laid by people who preceded the people who preceded them. Migrants who'd come all the way from Anatolia, through the Aegean, down to Iberia, and then back north to Britain. It was these people, we think, who introduced the great tradition of building megaliths, enormous stone monuments to the British Isles. Whilst others would build things like standing stones and greater structures still after them, it would be this one that would stand out as unique. The story that I'll be exploring today is one of a lengthy process. Much like stone hewn from a mountainside, it takes us all over the world across thousands of years of history, and then right up to the present day. So let's look into the folklore, the fact and the fiction behind Stonehenge. What's the meaning of Stonehenge? Thus spake the Norwegian comedy duo Ilvis in their titular song, but we'll get to that matter much later. We'll need to start at the very beginning, and to do that requires us going back a very long way. I actually attempted to assemble a book on British history a while back. I may end up finishing it one day, but the first large chunk of it was about this period in time, the Stone Age and the Bronze Age, and it was sizable. You see, the history of the Stone Age is the history of Britain, at least as far as the early developments go. One arises, so too does the other, and the one is shaped by the other. What's a henge while we're at it? And what's a Stonehenge, for those of you who somehow have never heard of it? Well, a henge is a particular type of earthwork of the Neolithic period, that's the New Stone Age, typically consisting of a roughly circular or oval-shaped bank with an internal ditch surrounded by a central flat area of more than 20 metres in diameter. There's typically little, if any, evidence that these structures were occupied or used as any kind of dwelling, but they did contain ritual structures like stone circles, timber circles, and coves. Stonehenge is far from the only henge, but it is the most well-known and one of the best preserved, being as it was made out of stone rather than wood, as many henges were. Matter of fact, the first henge on the Stonehenge site was made of wood. Thus, where the wood of other henges rotted, the stone of Stonehenge stayed. So... Stonehenge is a large monument built for a relatively obscure purpose in Wiltshire in England using stones hauled there from Wales. Now, I should clarify, the largest standing stones at Stonehenge are made of a local sandstone called Sarsen, but the smaller ones, known as the Blue Stones, which will be quite important later, came from the Preseli Hills in Pembrokeshire in Wales. Bluestone is not a specific term, it's used mostly to cover the not-intrinsic stones at Stonehenge, it's a convenience label rather than a geological one. It covers a whole bunch of different rock types, around 20, one of the most common being Preseli spotted dolerite, a kind of igneous rock. Tools made of Preseli bluestone, like axes, have been discovered elsewhere in the British Isles, but many of them appear to have been made in or near Stonehenge, since there are similarities between them and the other ones. 
The bluestones at Stonehenge were put there during the third phase of its construction, around 2300 BC. It's assumed that there were about 80 of them to begin with, but we don't know that since there are only 43 left. This is mostly just from other archaeology. These stones weigh between 2 and 4 tons each, whereas the biggest of Stonehenge weighed around 25 tons. Now back to the actual history. Sometime in the 10,000s BC, Britain was connected to mainland Europe via an area called Doggerland, off what is now the Dogger Bank, named for Dutch fishing ships called Doggers. Around 6,500 BC, Doggerland flooded, and Britain was left an island. But the periods of concern are the Neolithic, i.e. New Stone Age, and Early Bronze Age, which happens around 4000 BC until 800 BC, so that's where we are in the geological sense. The beginning of this period was characterised by late Stone Age technology and societies, whilst towards the end we see the fully formed Bronze Age societies. As mentioned, this was before the migration of the so-called Hallstatt culture and the arrival of the Celts to Britain. This starts earlier. Now at this time, Britain was something of a relative unknown to the rest of the world. Or so we used to think. In actuality, Britain had something that the rest of the Bronze Age world really wanted and needed, and it's actually quite relevant to our story. You see, Britain had tin. Yep, tin. Tin mined in the south of England and Wales was sent via trade ships and caravans all the way to Mycenaean Greece. Tin is needed to make bronze, which is an alloy of copper and tin, and tin was found only in a few places compared to copper, which was more abundant. Thus, Britain made a first and lasting connection to the wider world, despite having a reputation for a long time as a faraway, isolated island in the mists. Its tin exports helped what were called the Wessex culture develop their megaliths, including the latter phases of Stonehenge. Now, note that Wessex culture is not related to the West Saxons of Wessex, which came later. The first signs of Stonehenge begin sometime around 8000 BC, 6000 years before the bits we'd recognise. Post holes, these being holes that large wooden posts would be erected in, were found dating back to that time period. These would have had some ritual significance, but rotted away in their holes. That said, at that time the area was still heavily wooded. It wouldn't be until around 4000 BC that the area started to be seriously cleared by both farmers making use of the land and those wishing to expand the site. Thus we get Stonehenge 1. Built using flint and stone tools, it was a bank and enclosure in a circular pattern made of chalk. It would have had boulders dug from a ditch and then piled to form the bank. The purpose of this first Stonehenge would have probably been burial purposes. The bodies found there were cremated first, then buried, with large so-called bluestones then brought in from Wales to demarcate where the bodies were buried later. Now, the interesting thing is how far the bodies we found came from. They came from all over the place. Some from Wales, where the stones would come from, some from the Alpine areas of Germany, some from the Mediterranean Sea, others from France. And we'll discuss the significance of that later. So Stonehenge then goes through some serious renovations over the next thousand years or so. Around the start of the Bronze Age in Britain, at about the 2600 BC mark, the switch was made predominantly from wood to stone, and more concentric arrays of holes were dug. This is called Stonehenge 3-1, Stonehenge 2 having been additional layering of more wooden poles and cremated bodies. When we get the Welsh bluestones coming in in force, in 2019 they found evidence of the source of the bluestone, so it wasn't moved there by glacial action like was previously mooted, it was intentionally quarried and then brought with similar intention. Each stone weighs around 2 tons and is 6.5 feet tall, 3 feet wide and 3 feet thick, on average for the small ones. There have been suggestions that, based on methods used in China, Japan and India for moving them, to help teams carry them, that's how they were moved, using rows of poles and frameworks. The other theories that they were rolled on logs, like the Egyptians building the pyramids, but we'll get to the theories of how it was built in a bit. 
Then came Stonehenge 3 too, even more larger stones. 30 in a 108 foot diameter circle with 30 resting on top, fitted using what would be woodworking joints. 13 feet high, nearly 7 foot wide, weighing in at 25 tonnes apiece on the outer ring. There were ones taller still. The highest would have been around 24 feet tall, but that one's no longer standing. The one upright Great Trilothon, as they're known, is 22 feet tall. These were carved with symbols such as axe heads, daggers, and other assorted Bronze Age weaponry. These were the last major developments of the monument. After that, it mostly saw reshuffles of how the stones were arranged. Then the history of Stonehenge after that gets a little bit strange. We don't really know when it stopped being used, probably sometime in the Iron Age, but Roman coins and medieval artifacts have been found there, even the body of a Saxon man from the 7th century. We've known about Stonehenge for as long as it's been there. Medieval scholars were the first to question its origins and purpose seriously. Geoffrey of Monmouth, who we've talked about a little bit before, the famed and not totally reliable medieval English historian, wrote in his History of the Kings of Britain that the wizard Merlin built Stonehenge during the reign of the semi-historical king Aurelius Ambrosius. Apparently the rocks were healing rocks, brought from Africa to Ireland for their healing properties. Merlin, King Arthur's father Uther Pendragon, and 15,000 knights went to take them from Ireland, where it had been built by giants, into a monument. Merlin was the one to finally move the stones, where it was dedicated as a monument to 3,000 nobles who died in battle against the Saxons. There's another Saxon legend, that the invading Saxon Hengist betrayed and killed some Brythonic warriors, Brythonic being the people inhabiting Britain before the Saxons and after the Romans, and erected Stonehenge as a sign of remorse for that massacre. Now, of course, we know that neither of these two stories holds water because we know when Stonehenge was built, and it was way before either of these two times. But we will return to Geoffrey of Monmouth's theory in a bit because it does hold truth for something, maybe. Stonehenge was owned by private families until 1918 when Cecil Chubb, its last owner, gave it to the government. The story goes that he bought it on a whim or as a gift for his wife at an auction. In reality, what he wanted was for a local to the area to be the one to own the stones. But when he gave the stones to the government, he required certain caveats, specifically that nobody build on or near the site, and that the site be free and open for people to visit, with the cost of visiting being no more than a shilling, or, as stipulated, a reasonable amount to be used for the upkeep of the monument. In 1905, the first neo-pagan ritual was held at the site, with nearly 300 people showing up, although at the time this event was mocked in the press. But after the European Court of Human Rights made a ruling, any genuinely religious person has the right to worship in their own place of worship, and Stonehenge is considered as such a place for neo-Druids, pagans, or other, quote, earth-based or old religions. Now, the connection here is a little strange, mostly because we don't really know exactly what the people who built Stonehenge worshipped. We can make educated guesses based on the symbols on the monument, or the arrangement of the stones, and certain other elements, but there's no clear necessary lineage between the modern Druidic and Pagan groups using it and the people who originally built it. The main debate about it is whether the stones need to be protected. Earlier in its history, Stonehenge was damaged by people messing about with it and in earlier festivals, so there was an argument that people shouldn't go near it for the sake of preservation. Given that tens of thousands of people go for the spring and winter equinoxes every year, I'll let you be the judge of that. There's also the issue of past and ongoing archaeology. There are, technically, exhumations of human remains on the site, and careful work needs to be undertaken to ensure that no artefacts are damaged. Now let's get to the heart of this mystery, the mystery of Stonehenge. Why and how? Well, the how is easier. We've mostly figured it out. 
The early henge structure was built of wood and earth, and that was created several ways. Digging holes in the earth and inserting wooden poles into them, digging up the soil and using the trench to then build an earthen mound, all rather standard boilerplate as far as Stone Age earthen monuments go. But then comes the later Bronze Age stuff where it gets a little trickier. This involved increasingly ludicrous quantities of stone being hauled from Wales to the Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire, a distance of around 150 miles according to modern archaeology. Now, the moving of the stones could have been done several ways, and, like with the Easter Island heads, size and weight is the big elephant in the room. Especially since the people who constructed Stonehenge didn't have the wheel, so there would have been a lot of dragging involved. But it is possible. A team of researchers in 1995 used a sleigh coated in animal fat to move a 40-ton slab of rock from the Marlborough Downs to near Stonehenge, an 18-mile journey, and it took 100 people to do it. Now, 18 miles is a fair sight shorter than 150 miles, but the principle is sound. You could also use A-frame lifting devices to lift them, a technology available to Stone Age peoples, and in theory they could have just been moved on rollers of logs, which was the prevailing theory for a while. There was another popular idea that a glacier, the Irish Sea Glacier, was what transported the bluestones to the site via its movement, but this theory, given the location of the bluestone quarry and other facets of the rocks, for instance the use of Welsh bluestone around the British Isles, tends to leave this idea less popular. But why was Stonehenge built? Well, the short answer is, we don't know. We have loads of theories which I'll explore, but since the culture that built Stonehenge didn't leave written records, we just don't know for certain. Now, the first obvious theory is ancestor worship. Stonehenge incorporates what we would otherwise call barrows, and houses the remains of many people from a wide span of time. Thus, the obvious first answer is that the stones are sort of grave markers, and that Stonehenge is some kind of ancient necropolis. The next most common speculation is that it was used as a calendar. Certain stones are aligned to things like the sunrise at the summer solstice, and the sunset at the winter solstice, and various other astronomical observations. This could mean that the site was used as a kind of observatory to track seasonal changes and measure the passage of time. However, another theory based off this astronomical function is more religion-based, that the site represented the underworld. Another site further down the River Avon, the Durrington Walls Henge, is theorised to be connected to Stonehenge as part of what's called a ritual landscape, a large area used for ceremonial purposes. The journey from the first site to Stonehenge via the Avon represents the journey of the soul from the land of the living to the land of the dead. Geoffrey of Monmouth also liked this theory for the record. Researchers at the University of Sheffield proposed that it could have been built as a monument to peace. At that time period, Britain was undergoing something of a cultural shift, and many more disparate tribal groups were beginning to unify politically and culturally, so it could have been built to celebrate that. But there is another theory that I'm quite interested in. Remember the old story from Geoffrey of Monmouth that the stones originally had some healing value? Well, that might not be quite as crazy as it sounds. The site could have been a Neolithic or Bronze Age equivalent to Lourdes, a place of healing that people from all over would travel to. Find that far-fetched? Why were so many skeletons found buried there who had been born and raised far afield, as far away as Alpine Germany and the southern Mediterranean? Why are so many of the skeletons buried there exhibiting trauma deformities, like injuries sustained in life or present from birth? Now, this theory tends to be used in conjunction with other theories, that the healing properties of the stone were used parallel to their purpose as a calendar or as a place of ancestral worship, but it is an interesting one. 
the thread of it runs concurrent throughout so many different historical tellings of the Stonehenge story is that the rocks had healing power. And here's another little tidbit that helps with that, something called ringing rocks. When struck, the stones of Stonehenge ring out with a strange clanging, much unlike ordinary rock. In certain cultures, ringing rocks are thought to have healing properties, which would explain why the bluestones were hauled so far for just that purpose. It couldn't have been any other kind of stone. The place in Wales where the rocks were quarried is called Meinklachog, which means ringing rock. The church of the village used bluestones instead of metal church bells all the way up to the 18th century. So that's something to consider. So, what is the deal with Stonehenge? Well, I think basically all of the theories ring true to a certain extent, if you'll pardon the pun. Megaliths and other monuments in general tend to get used for multiple purposes, it's just more efficient that way. Massive cathedrals and churches would often host market stalls out front and be used as places of information dissemination. Why? Well, because as much as whatever deity you're worshipping needs their alone time, they're a massive investment to build and getting the most use out of them is preferred. So I'd say probably all of the theories are true, to some extent or another. I'm sure it was used as a calendar. It aligns perfectly with certain dates that would likely have been of consequence to Neolithic Britons. It probably was thought to have healing properties. I find it unlikely that it's a coincidence that not only did many people travel seemingly from all over to visit these stones, but that many people who covered them before the modern era made mention of the healing properties and the connection to the ringing rocks, as well as the deformities of the people who were buried there. Was it also a peace monument? This one I have a little bit of a harder time believing. Perhaps one of the periods of construction would be associated with that, but certainly not the thousand or so years of development. It couldn't have been a very long process peace monument, I don't think. Then there's the ancestor worship, and I'd say that was almost a given. Unless we're really very wrong about some of the more common religious practices in the world applying to Stone Age Britain, there would probably have been some element of ancestor worship taking place, with the bodies being there and the ones we found, plus the markings on the stones. So I think the best way to put it is that Stonehenge was a monument. A little bit disappointing maybe, and perhaps a little simplistic, but I really think that about sums it up as well as we can. Stonehenge was a monument, and monuments mean different things to different people. What to one person has purely aesthetic value, to another person can have a deep religious significance, and to yet another person can have an archaeological importance. We use monuments for all kinds of things. Some people think they have special properties, others use them for practical reasons, and some just like to look at them, but a monument can be all of these things to everyone. Just look at the modern usage of Stonehenge. Some people want to practice a revived ancient religious practice, and that's fine. Other people want to use the rest of the year to conduct archaeological research, and that's also fine. Others just like to look at it, and that's also fine. Another thing to consider is that the world has always been more connected than we give it credit for, even way back in the Stone and Bronze Ages. It's likely, to my mind at least, that the stories of the strange stones that had healing properties would have been spread along the same trade routes that carried British tin to the Bronze Age Mediterranean. Thus, people would have gone back along those routes to Stonehenge to try their luck, and we get those bodies buried there that came from far away across a wide time frame. And the people who built the monument must have known about the ringing rocks of Wales, the Bluestones, and specifically wanted them for the monument. 
Much like how in Geoffrey's story, King Aurelius wanted the Irish stone specifically, the people of ancient Wiltshire must have felt that nothing else could suffice, and so took great pains and efforts to commission the quarrying of the stones and the transporting of them. It would have taken hundreds if not thousands of people to do it, by the way. 93 stones at the site in total, and the research has shown that it took between 20 to 50 people per stone to shift them all the way. Now, no, not every single stone was taken from Wales. But that means you've got at least 3,000 people, not taking into account the possibility that they use the same people to carry multiple stones, and we're assuming maximum efficiency here. Modern Egyptologists believe that the pyramids, built around the same time, took somewhere between 20 to 30,000 skilled craftsmen and labourers with all the resources of the Old Kingdom, and it took them 20 years or so to build each one. Now, of course, the pyramids are way bigger than Stonehenge, but once I saw calculated Stonehenge at about 10 million man-hours of labour, which is nothing to sneeze at. That's 11,000 years or so. So if you had 11,000 people taking a year each of man labour, it would take, in theory, one year to build. There's some number in the middle there that fits... I'm honestly not good enough at maths or archaeology or engineering to work out the exact estimation of how long it took or how many people it took. You could, I guess, from those numbers, extrapolate a whole bunch of different conclusions. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that the old world, much like the new world, was connected. People from one place went to other places. They traded. They communicated. They attempted to establish links. The idea that all peoples who existed before the industrial period were exceptionally tribalistic and aggressive towards outsiders, and that the state of nature of mankind is to attack each other on sight, is flawed inherently and the archaeology doesn't support it. Of course there were tribes and groups like that, the North Sentinel and Lees spring to mind, but the historic messing about of them by the British kind of explains that particular phenomenon. But for most people throughout history, the process of dealing with other people is one of simple weighing up. Who is this person to me? Do I know them? Do they have something I want or need? Do I have something they want or need? Do I like them? Do they like me? Humans are social creatures, and it shows. The kinds of cooperation required to build something like Stonehenge don't just come out of thin air, it's a kind of thing that builds over a long time. Much like Stonehenge itself. So, there you have it. Stonehenge is Stonehenge. And really, I think that about shows that the mystery of Stonehenge is just that. A mystery. Why was it built? Well, maybe we'll never know the exact answer, but we've got some pretty good theories, all of which work in conjunction to reach a pretty satisfying conclusion, to my mind at least. So with that, we close the book, at least for now, on the story of Stonehenge. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Support us on Patreon at Demystified by Ashley Styles, and follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.